For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Our scripture text for today is taken from the 12th and 13th chapters of the book of Romans. Romans 12, 1 and 2, and then 13 verses 1 through 8. Let us stand for prayer for the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit and remain standing, please, for the reading of the Word of God. We come now, Lord, thanking you for giving us this Word that embraces all of life, praying that you would, your Holy Spirit would enlighten our minds and our hearts, help us to understand this Word, help us to be honest with ourselves, that he might empower us to face the critical issues that we have to face today in a way that honors you and that is in accordance with your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 13. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. You may be seated. If you're a visitor here today, we're in the midst of a short series on the sufficiency of Scripture. And we've tried to show that the Bible not only tells us how to avoid hell when we die, but it also is a manual for creation. It tells us how to understand life. It tells us how to, lo- to, to live life. It tells us, it gives us direction and light so that when we walk in the path of that word, we do not walk in darkness. It helps us understand things. It uh, thoroughly equips us unto every good work. It grants us everything we need for life and godliness. It uh, is the basis of our worldview. 
that it's only as we seek to understand any area of life in terms of the Bible that we understand life the way God understands it, although on a creaturely level. The Bible deals with a whole range of issues and challenges and struggles and subjects that we all deal with every day of our lives, some of us, some uh, areas more than others. It deals with things from horticulture to funerals, uh, from agriculture to uh, labor management laws, that it deals with family, church, and state, and we've try, been trying to show how the sufficiency of the Bible applies to these various areas. So we spent two Sundays on how the sufficiency of Scripture applies to worship, to show that everything we need to worship God, we have commanded to us in the Scriptures. This is our second sermon on the sufficiency of the Bible for politics, that everything we need to know to have a, a proper understanding of politics and civil magistrate is revealed to us in the Bible. And then the Lord willing, in future Sundays, we'll talk about the sufficiency of the Bible for the church and then the sufficiency of the Bible for the family. Let, let me remind you what the, the points we made in our first sermon on the sufficiency of the Bible for politics. We showed that there is one common approach to politics and the civil magistrate throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. Whether the Bible's dealing with ancient Israel, whether it's dealing with other nations surrounding ancient Israel like Assyria and Babylon and Edom and Philistia and all the rest, or whether it's talking about the Roman Empire in the New Testament, there is one common approach comprised of seven principles uh, that we dealt with last week. First, God sovereignly appoints and removes civil magistrates. Two, civil magistrates as God's appointees are not to be resisted when they're exercising legitimate authority. Third, civil magistrates bear religious titles like minister and servant of God because, four, civil magistrates are God vice regents. They're God's rep, uh, representatives and they're God's deputies administering justice in his name in the earth. And therefore, as God's vice regents, they are avengers of God's wrath. The civil magistrate, when applying God's law, is the instrument God used to bring his wrath upon those who break his moral order. Fifth, civil magistrates have a twofold responsibility of deterring evil and promoting and honoring good behavior. Sixth, civil magistrates must rule according to God's law in the Bible and to no other. And seventh, therefore, civil magistrates are not above criticism but are fully subject to criticism and judgment for their lawlessness. Now today we come back to the 12th and 13th chapters of Romans. And I read them together, even though there's several verses in between, because uh, I, I want to impress you with the context of what's going on here. In Romans 12, you see the word therefore, verse 1. Therefore, those of you who are recipients of God's grace are to live as his sacrifices not uh, conforming to this world, not letting this world squeeze you into its mold, but being transformed from the inside out by the Word of God. And that distinctively Christ-like behavior is to show itself in every kind of relationship in your life. And then from verse 3 of Romans 12 down through the end of that chapter, you're given various kinds of relationships. The relationships in the church, the relationships with other people in general, the relationship you have with your enemies. And now in the 13th chapter, the first eight verses, the relationship that you have with uh, the state and with the civil magistrate. In the overall context of things, 
Romans 13, 1 through 8, is doing two things. Now, remember the outline of the whole book. The first 11 chapters are doctrine. The verse chapter 12 through chapter 16 are the ethical, practical application of those doctrines. Romans 13 is in that last section. So the concern is not just to set forth a philosophy of politics, but it is, first of all, to set forth practical ethics, showing Christians how they are to respond to the civil magistrate, and secondly, it, uh, a, a normative description of what the state should be and what the responsibility and duty of the civil magistrate is to Almighty God. Now, one of the things that I trust uh, it will impress you, as it has me, uh, with Romans 13, 1 through 8, is it tells us once again the sufficiency of the Bible for politics. It contains all the principles that you and I need to develop a Christian view of politics and the civil magistrate. It contains all we need to enable us to correctly analyze and critique any political viewpoint on any subject that we might hear today from health care to income tax to uh, rescue for Haiti. And those three principles are simply these. Romans 13, 1 through 8 sets forth one the origin of the civil magistrate, two, the function of the civil magistrate, and three, the powers of the civil magistrate. So if you understand what this text says about those three points, uh, you don't need to read some big long book on constitutional law to be able to critique uh, basically the various political viewpoints and offers and candidates that are out there before us. So let's look at uh, each of those three points. The first is the origin of civil government, and you see that in verses 1 and 2. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves." So here you see the origin of civil magistrate, the origin of civil governments is not a social compact where a group of men got together and worked out and negotiated things. But the origin of civil government is with God himself. The powers that be are ordained by God. We might even say that God's the one not only who thought up marriage, but who thought up civil government. It did not originate with man. It originated with God. And so the great presupposition of these two first verses is the supremacy of God over the civil government. It's not the civil government that's supreme because it's ordained by God. It's God who is supreme. And it is God who has ordained civil government and given it it, its purpose. Therefore, the state, and show you how practical that is, that may seem so obvious to you, but it's not obvious to most conservatives and no liberals, and that is this, that the state is accountable to God. The civil government is accountable to God for all of its actions, policies, legislation, and everything else. It is accountable to its origin. That's why we must make a big point. When you make the point that the civil magistrate has its origin in God, you are already distinguishing yourselves from conservatives and liberals. What is it the conservative believes? He believes that the power is in the people. That the source of government's power is in the people. You remember that great speech, great and short speech written on the back of an envelope? 
in uh, Gettysburg, after the Battle of Gettysburg by President Abraham Lincoln, when he said that the, this, uh, we are to uh, work together for unity so that a government of the people, by the people, and for the people will not perish from the earth. He knew better. He knew that was not true. He knew no president in the United States or any other elected official had ever said such a thing. The Constitution of the United States erects a republic that is not of the people, by the people, and for the people. It is of or from the living God, governed not by the people. It's not a democracy, it's a republic. But governed by representatives of the Constitution, elected by the people. And it wasn't for the people. It was for the glory of God and the protection of God's moral order on this earth. So don't get swept away by emotions and great speeches. It was a great speech. It's a wizard book. I had to memorize it. And I, I loved it back when I was in high school. But remember, the first two verses contradict the statement that this is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Its origin is God. It is a civil government of and from God, and therefore <coughs> is not accountable to the people, but to God. One time when I ran for Congress, I had a coffee, and, and uh, this young person, this man in the room who was a Christian, professed Christian, said, uh, how are you going to determine how you're going to vote on things? And I said, in essence, above a lot of other things, I said, well, I'm going to vote my conscience. Now, this guy was a, quote, conservative Christian. And he said, I'm not going to vote for anybody that, quote, votes his conscience. I don't want somebody in Congress to vote his conscience. I want him to vote the way the people that put him in office wanted him to vote. I said, well, then vote for the incumbent. But the point is this. The point is this, that those who are elected to office do not take an oath when they enter office, I swear to uphold and defend the wishes of my constituency. Do they? I vow to uphold, swear to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States that is rooted in the God of Scriptures. Now, that whole idea comes from the first two verses of the uh, 13th chapter of Romans. That the state is accountable to God, not to the people. And here, once again, as we've done so many times, but we need to keep doing it because we have children grow up and we have new people. I trust you know the difference between a democracy and a republic. I mean, that's a vital distinction biblically. Even on Fox News, they don't know the difference. They have some kind of contest for young people on how you would define a democracy. As if this country is a democracy. And once again, I'll say, show me in the Constitution of the United States, Declaration of Independence, anywhere where the word democracy uh, is used to describe what this country is. We're trying to start a democracy in Iraq. Well, the problem with that is, besides it's an unbiblical form of government, is that the majority will still be Muslim. But the point is, a democracy is a nation where the people rule. Where the whims and fancies and desires of the people are the origin and source of law and governmental authority. In a republic, you have a nation governed by law, enforced and administered by men elected by the people to represent that law. Now that whole idea 
comes from the first two verses of the 13th chapter of Romans. That the civil government is accountable not to people, but to the living God and to the doing of his will. And therefore, since God is supreme, and since he has instituted civil authority, we must submit to that law and to its legal authority whenever it does what's right. Now, the whole subject of the duty of resistance to tyranny that we see reflected in our, Constitu- in our Declaration of Independence that grows out of the Scottish Reformation is another uh, subject. But we're not revolutionaries. We recognize that the state is a gift of God, and whenever it uses its authority biblically and lawfully, it is to be respected. So, since God is supreme, we must submit to all his institutions, and all his institutions must submit to him. They must recognize his supremacy. They must obey and enforce his will. Any political institution on earth, whether municipal, county, state, or federal, that refuses to do so is in rebellion against God's social order for his creation and will face God's judgment unless it repents. That's the first principle. The second principle is in verses 3 and 4, and that is the function of the civil government. Now, you notice I use the word function in the singular, the function of the civil government. It doesn't have a variety of functions. It has one function assigned it by God in verses 3 and 4. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil behavior. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. So here you see one clear function of holy, the clear function of Holy Scripture, that is to terrorize evildoers, to punish the lawless, to promote and protect the righteous, righteous behavior, to punish lawless behavior so as to promote lawful behavior, to punish criminal behavior so as to protect lawful behavior. It is to terrorize evildoers. You notice how it says it, that evils, uh, rulers, in verse 3, are a cause of fear for somebody. But they shouldn't be a cause of fear for people who obey the law of God, but those who break the law of the land. And it is a minister of God, in verse 4, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. We saw last week that the civil magistrate is God's instrument for bringing his wrath and his punishment and his vengeance upon those who seek to break or transgress his moral order for human society. That is the function of the civil government. The function of the civil government is not health, education, and welfare. The civil government has no responsibility whatsoever. In fact, it's a usurpation of responsibility that God hasn't given it, nor has the Constitution of the United States given it. Since the Constitution is reflective of Romans 13, it has no responsibility before God uh, to keep you healthy or to provide for your health, except in the Old Testament in instances of plagues and infectious diseases, the civil government does have the responsibility to quarantine those who have infectious diseases as a compassionate way of stopping plagues. Beyond that, the civil government has no responsibility for your health. 
It has no responsibility for your education or the education of your children. It has no responsibility for your welfare. This purpose of the civil government, according to God, is to terrorize evil doers, not to make sure you're educated, not to make sure you're healthy, not to take care of you when you're in financial need, and not to send money to Haiti. Now, that sounds so unloving, doesn't it? That sounds so uncompassionate. And yet, we, we've, we've encouraged you and we encourage Christians to do what you can to help the people in Haiti. It's, uh, the responsibility of the civil government is not to send money to other countries, whatever the purpose. It's not to provide for a public school system. It's not pro- to provide for Social Security. It's not to provide uh, any kind, any other agency or program except one. And that is to protect you from the bad guys and to terrorize evildoers with the power of the sword so they'll think twice before they commit a crime because they know if they do commit a crime, the punishment against them will be just and swift and terrible. And that's what deters crime. Have you noticed that when the civil government fails to do the one thing God meant it to do, and gets involved in all these other areas, it messes up everything. There's more lawlessness. I mean, remember when Lyndon Johnson declared war on poverty? Poverty was going down that year. And the moment he declared war on poverty and committed tax money to, the, to uh, poverty, poverty has been increasing ever since. You get more of what you subsidize. And uh, the point is that the civil government has one function. Now, there is a, a, a responsibility in connection with that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 17, verse 9, it says that the civil government does have the duty to educate the citizens in constitutional law. It says, And they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them, And they went throughout all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. This was the governmental representatives. Not give them education in general, but to teach the people of Judah what the Constitution said. And, of course, what was the Constitution? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And, I mean, how ignorant are our people? I remember when I ran for Congress, we took a poll. And we ask this question, is the following statement in the United States Constitution, from each according to his ability to each according to his need, 60% of the people polled said yes. That's a great summary of communism, of Marxism, and most people polled thought that was in the United States Constitution. Did you know, let me give you another example. Did you know the Constitution of the United States forbids the federal government to own any property except for federal buildings? Post offices, and that's it. You say, what about national parks? Doesn't say anything about my national parks. And yet the civil government of the United States owns more land than there is land east of the Mississippi River. And most people don't even know that the Constitution forbids the ownership of land of the federal government. Uh, My point is that the civil government has one function, That one function is reflected in the historical laws of the land 
And that one function is to terrorize evildoers. Let me give you some other verses. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 and following. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made in behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That if the civil government is ter- uh, 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 practicing tyranny, if it's not re- recognizing its c- accountability to the supremacy of God, then there's no way that we can lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And the only way that can happen is when the civil government sees as its function to promote obedience to God's law as a nation by punishing disobedience to God's law in a nation by the enforcement of the moral principles of the Ten Commandments and the judicial laws of the Bible. Only then will you and I be able to live tranquil and quiet lives. Then in verses 3 and 7, you have the three powers that God has given the civil government to carry out its one function. So its origin is God. That's the one to whom it's accountable. Second, its one and only function is the administration of justice, the punishment of the lawbreaker for the protection of the lawkeeper. And now, what are the powers of the civil magistrate? What are those powers that God has given the civil magistrate to use legally to as, so as to promote good and punish evil? There are three. And the first is the power of a minister of God. Did you notice how many times that word occurs here in Romans 13? In verse 4, it says, For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God. Uh, Down in verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants or ministers of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. So several times this one passage, the civil magistrate is said to have the power of a minister of God. Now that is an awesome power. In the church, I and other ordained preachers are called the ministers of God. Because God has laid upon us a a very heavy burden backed by awesome power. And that is to take this book and to minister to you what's written in this book. So that as an ordained minister faithfully ministers to you what's written in the book without adding to or taking away from, adding his own opinions. When he administers this book, his ministration, his ministry is backed by the power of God himself. Now, that same idea, the very same word, is applied to politicians, elected officials. The civil magistrate is to be a minister of God. And it has the same meaning as in the church, a very similar meaning. The purpose of the civil magistrate is to take the laws of the Bible that pertain to civil affairs and minister them, obey them, and enforce them without adding to or taking away from. They, like I, have no legislative authority. 
I can't make up any new doctrines. I can't make up an 11th commandment to the 10th commandment. I can only administer what's written. In that sense, the civil magistrate has no legislative authority. He cannot create legislations and policies, rules and regulations, ex nihilo, out of nothing, by fiat, because the, uh, the majority have the power to do those things. In his accountability before God, he may make pass no laws and make no legislation except what is rooted in the laws of the Holy Bible pertaining to civil affairs. Now, that's radical today. Only a teeny minority of people believe that today. Whereas that used to be the opinion of historic Reformed Presbyterians and Baptists and Episcopalians and even Roman Catholics through much of the history of the United States. So you see how far we have fallen. How many of the, uh, of the laws or legislation that are, that's passed every day would you say is based upon the law of God? I'd say very little. And what that means then is most of the laws of the land today represent a usurpation of authority from the living God. Who is the source of law for most politicians today? Himself, a lobbyist, the most of the constituency, the most powerful man contributor in his constituency. Man is his source of law. And as long as that's the case, America will continue to go downhill. The civil government has the power of a minister of God, which is also a limit upon civil government. It may not make any laws it has the power to make. It may only pass laws that are rooted in the law of God contained in the Bible. Why? Because the civil magistrate is a minister of God. Well, people like to bring up this. They like to say, well, are you mixing religion and politics? And the answer is, of course. It's impossible not to mix religion and politics. Every time any resolution is brought before any voting body, it is because the person that brought that resolution thought there was something good about that particular resolution, that it wasn't bad, it was good, representing his own ethical principles and religious approach to life. So the question is not whether religion and politics will be mixed in this country. And this is where we've got to be clear. The religion is, uh, the question is, which religion will be mixed with politics? We have people now all over this country crying out for the Sharia, an aspect of Islamic law to be incorporated in law, in, in, in state law and federal law in this country. People are trying to mix Islamic religious law, etc. It's not whether, it's which. And you and I as Christians must not cower and back down when that question is, is applied to us and say according to our history, it is God's law that's the basis of morality and of justice in this land. And without God as the lawgiver, everything falls apart. Well, then they're going to say to you, well, do you believe in legislating morality? And you answer, yes and no. If you mean, do I believe in passing laws so as to make people better, 
No, I'm not a liberal. That's the basis of liberal laws. Let's outlaw guns and everybody will be better. You see, they believe in passing laws so as to make, it, make people behave better. That's legislating morality. That's not the purpose of law. But because every piece of legislation represents somebody's view of morality and religion, every piece of legislation that is passed is a legislation of somebody's understanding of morality. Make sure you have good answers for these. And then also people are going to say, well, if you believe that the laws of the Bible should be the only source of law for the civil magistrates of the United States, that's going to be a heavy burden because you Christians are so legalistic. Legalistic? We only got a couple hundred. They got tens upon tens upon tens of thousands of laws. I mean, have you ever read the Federal Register? The uh, document about all the new uh, regulations that come from the Executive Department of the United States government? I mean, you can't keep up with the regulations. Have you ever read the Congressional Quarterly? I tried to for a few months. It's a big old thick magazine that comes out every day uh, that cluttered my house for about a year. And it gives you every word and every law that was passed the day before in Congress. We're not the legalists. We believe in freedom. That when you have a Christian republic that realizes that its only source of law is God's law contained in Scripture, you have fewer laws, more freedom, fewer governmental employees and bureaucracies. Less, uh, that kind of Christian republic is less expensive than any humanistic democracy or socialist state or welfare system. Don't call me legalistic. And then they say, well, do you really want a theocracy in this country? And you say, it all depends on what you mean by the word. If you mean by theocracy, something like Ayatollah Khomeini set up in Iran many years ago, where both the religious leaders and the civil leaders share responsibility in the government of the land. Of course, I don't want any Islamic theocracy. But I do want a theocracy. But I want a special kind of theocracy. Because, you see, all civil magistrates, all civil government. Now, what I'm doing, I'm arming you. I'm giving you ammunition for the, the questions. All civil governments are theocracies. Why? Because the source of law for any people uh, is the God of that people. You show me where a person goes to get the law, a nation goes to get its laws, and I'll show you the God that it serves. So every nation has a sort of source of law. Every nation has a God. The word theocracy means God ruled. Every nation is a theocracy. I just want a special God. I want one God to be the source of law. I want that God not to be man. I don't want him to be Allah. I want a Christian republic. And the only place you can have liberty and justice for all is in the Christian republic where the laws are based upon the laws of the one and only triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Scripture, the creator of the world, and the God of, holy, uh, and the, the God of the Bible. That kind of theocracy. Jesus is said to be the ruler of the kings of the earth. Is that true or not? He said to be the king of kings and lord of lords. In Ephesians 1, Christ is said not only to be the head of the church, but head over all things on earth for the sake of the church. 
And that includes the civil government. So what is it that we want the civil government to do as Christians? We want them to pledge their allegiance from the heart, from the upper echelons of government to the lowliest citizen, that Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth and the King of kings and Lord of lords. I love what Ann Coulter said one time. I saw her say this on a talk show. and She had this humanist uh, talk show guy asking her smart aleck questions. And she said, Miss Coulter, are you saying that the problems of America cannot, cannot be solved unless everybody becomes a Christian? She says, yes. And he said, well, what about the Jews? And she said, they can become complete in Christ. So that's not radical for us. That's where we are. That's what we're driving toward. A nation that can confess we, the states of this Christian republic, do hereby recognize Jesus Christ as the Son of God and King of kings and Lord of lords, and vow that we will not pass any laws in this republic contrary to the laws of God contained in Holy Scripture. That's the goal. That's not the goal of conservatism. That's not the goal of liberalism. But that is the goal of Christian politics. Then there is a third power. The power of a minister of God. The power of, uh, uh, excuse me, a second power. And that is the power of the sword. The power of the sword. Verse 3. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil behavior. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you'll, not, you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God and avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. So God has given the civil magistrates the power of the sword. Now that is a figure of speech. That's a symbol. It is a symbol for legal coercion and the legal use of deadly force if necessary to maintain God's moral order and to restrain lawless people from lawless acts. What's the purpose of a sword? It's not to butter bread. The purpose of the sword is it's a deadly force that God empowers the civil magistrate to use when necessary in order to protect God's moral order and restrain lawless people from lawless acts. The sword was not given by God to the civil government for persecution, to persecute people who didn't believe in the Christian religion. as That was completely misunderstood in the Middle Ages. The sword was not given to the state for conquest, as Islam believes, and the conversion of the world. The, the responsibility of the civil government is not thought control. The purpose of the civil government is not to tell you what to believe. It's not to tell you what you can't believe. The purpose of the civil government is to judge actions, not thoughts. And to judge actions by the word of God, to punish bad actions, to protect good actions. The purpose of the sword is not to persecute people that disagree with us. It's not to conquer the world. What are the legal uses of the sword? The power of legal coercion and legal deadly force when necessary. It is to enable the civil magistrate 
to protect the law-abiding citizen from the lawless citizen. It's to enable the civil magistrate to be a holy terror to evildoers. It is to enable the civil magistrate to administer God's justice. The the state, in other words, must be of superior strength to its enemies if it's going to be able to administer justice. In Luke 14.31, Jesus said, Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down to take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? So that a civil magistrate must have sufficient power to be able to protect its citizens from those who would do it harm inside or outside its boundaries. Listen to Jesus' remarks in Luke eleven twenty one. When a strong man fully armed guards his own uh, homestead, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor, armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. Now, Jesus is not primarily concerned with military defense here. But he is using an analogy which he assumes to be a correct analogy. And that is if a civil magistrate is to be effective in defending its people from those who would do its harm inside and outside its borders, it must have sufficient military strength. But also, a civil magistrate must not be militaristic, keeping a larger than necessary military force on hand to carry out political objectives. Deuteronomy 17, verse 16 and 17 say, He shall not multiply horses for himself, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, make political alliances with other pagan nations, nor shall he greatly, um, can't read my writing, increase silver and gold for himself. So here you have definite limits that God places on the civil government's use of the sword. He can't have unnecessary power so that he can involve himself in political wars with political objectives. He cannot have many wives. Why would you have many wives? Because that was the way of sealing a political alliance with pagan nations. The point is that a Christian nation is forbidden by God to make any alliances with any non-Christian nations. But at the same time, after saying all this, Psalm 20 tells us that a nation must never trust in its military power. It must never trust in the power of the sword for security, but in the living God. The psalmist says, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heavens with the saving strength of his right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses. But we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. I want to read you a great couple paragraphs from a man named Rand on trusting in military and the sword instead of God. He said, the greatest army in the world with the finest equipment, backed by an aerial force surpassing in striking power and numbers, any combination that could be sent into the air against it, with an impregnable navy, including all necessary auxiliaries and transport, all this might, backed by the military genius of a leadership which could not be matched or excelled in military tactics, 
would still be powerless to overcome his people if they had set their own house in order. For when Israel was in a proper spiritual relationship to God, enabling their spiritual leaders to declare with authority, neither be terrified for the Lord your God, it is he that goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. No combination of military might upon the face of this earth can defeat them. And I would encourage you, brethren, to keep that in mind as we face terrorism in the the future. That it's not the United States and the sword that's going to protect you and me from terrorism. The civil government is to use that sword against terroristic attacks on the United States and its citizens. But our trust must not be in the sword, but in the living God. The sword is to be used in domestic affairs. That's why the Bible speaks very often of a death penalty for capital crimes. That some crimes are so wicked and so heinous that the only just way to punish them is by death. People today say, well, capital punishment does not deter crime. Don't fall into that trap. The answer is, that's not the purpose of capital punishment. It does deter that one man from ever committing another crime once you kill him. But the purpose of capital punishment is not to deter crime. The purpose of capital punishment is to administer justice upon this person that has committed such a heinous crime, only death is a just way of punishing that crime. And capital punishment, when practiced biblically, according to biblical principles, does deter crime. Uh, But putting somebody on a cot behind closed doors and injecting them with something that kills them slowly does not deter crime. The only kind of death penalty the Bible knows anything about is, is public execution. That deters crime. But no matter how faithfully you use the sword in domestic affairs to protect the law abiding from the lawless, the civil government will not be able be effective in determining cry, crime and promoting good without the following things to take place. It must use the sword according to the standard of biblical law. Most Americans must practice self-discipline. If you live in a country where most uh, Americans live for for pleasure and not for self-control and self-discipline, no matter how bloody the civil government gets, it's not going to restrain lawlessness. There must be the family practice, the family discipline. If the family's not working to restrain crime and evil in its own boundaries, don't expect the civil government to be effective. And the church must be effective and diligent in using the keys of the kingdom and in restraining lawlessness by church discipline. It's only when the civil government uses uh, the, God's word and when individuals seek to be self-disciplined and the f- a church practices church discipline and the family practices family discipline that the use of the sword will be effective in, that cult- in a culture. But the sword also has a place in international affairs as well. The Bible, uh, God does give the civil magistrate the authority to wage war as long as it is a defensive war. This is a dangerous world, and all utopian views about this world are naive, coercive, and cruel. God has not given the civil government the right to use the power of the sword and to go into other countries and punish other people because they're mean. God has not given the power of the sword of the civil government to be a policeman for the rest of the world. 
God has not given the authority, the, the state the authority to involve itself in offensive wars for political objectives. God has given the sword to the civil government to use only in just wars, which are wars of self-defense against those who would do us harm. When our federal government orders our young men into battle for oil or to punish bad guys in other parts of the world or to quell civil wars in other parts of the world and calls upon those young men to kill combatants, it's murder. And Christian soldiers must say no. Now, the third power is the power to tax. The power of minister of God, the power of the sword, and the power to tax. Look at verse 6. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. There is a necessity for a just tax, according to verse 6. And that is, it costs to use the power of the sword legally. You have to have judges. You have to have uh, marshal, sheriff. You have to have police force. You have to have soldier. You have to have navy. You have to have all those various things in order to protect the people of a nation that you're being called upon to protect. And that costs money. You have to pay people salary. You have to have courtrooms. And so the civil government does have the power to tax. But I want you to understand now something about taxation. You're not going to get this from conservatives or liberals, but this is the power. This is a pre, two presuppositions of taxation. You, you don't tax something. You don't believe you, uh, you, you only tax those things you believe you own and control. So the taxation presupposes ownership and sovereignty. A civil government taxes something because it believes it owns that. People are managers of it, but it owns that which it taxes and it's able to tax. It has sovereign control over it. It has authority over it. That means that the the presuppositions of the income tax, the property tax, inheritance taxes, sales taxes... The presupposition is that the state owns and controls your income, your property, your family, whatever you buy, and all your commercial engagements. What is a tax? A tax is a state-imposed levy by the government by which your wealth is forcibly taken from you for the use of the state. Now, that's okay. If the use is going to be the administration of justice and punishing bad guys for the protection of good guys. But nevertheless, it is a state-imposed levy by which your wealth is forcibly taken from you for the use of the state. All non-biblical taxes presuppose that the state owns you and all you possess and has the right of control over you. It may confiscate your property for whatever reason it sees fit. Now, that's the presupposition of politics in the United States today. My ability to, as a civil magistrate to tax 
everything about you presupposes the state owns you and has sovereign control over you. But the truth is this, that God alone is the absolute proprietor and sovereign of the universe, including you and all you possess. Only he has absolute ownership and control over all men and all of man's institutions. Only Jehovah controls you. Only Jehovah is your owner. Only Jehovah is sovereign. The earth is the Lord and all it contains, the world and they who live in it. So you see, we as Christians come head to head with all other politicians on this subject of taxation. Now, what does all this imply? You ready? Only God can impose taxes. If God is the sole proprietor and sovereign over all things, only he has the prerogative to impose taxes on anybody or anything. When any man or human institution, the state, imposes taxes not commanded by God, see we're back to the sufficiency of scripture, imposes taxes not commanded by God, they're usurping God's claim of ownership and of sovereignty over us and are seeking to establish their own autonomy and independence from God. And God views this as autonomy, as rebellion against Him. All United States taxes today are unbiblical. They're not commanded by God. They're destructive of family and economy and a sign of tyranny and revolt against God. Income tax, corporation tax... Property tax, inheritance tax, withholding tax, value-added tax, Social Security tax, all the rest are in direct disobedience to God. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Let me show you how God said he's going to use taxation as a judgment upon a nation that turns from him. God had been ruling his people through judges. First uh, Samuel eight, and uh, now they they want a king. Well, that would have been all right, because in Book of Deuteronomy, God provides for a king, but it's not just a king they want. Israel wants a king like the other nations around them. They want a king who will not only protect them, but who will control them. And provide for their every need, every need. So notice what Samuel says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 9. Now then listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure. This is God talking to Samuel. To the procedure of the king who will reign over them like the other nations. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him of him a king. And he said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. See if it sounds familiar. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chair, for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest, and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. 
And he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. And he will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flock and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now what does this king do to the people? You see a massive growth in these words, a massive growth of choking bureaucracy, regulating everything. You see the socialization of agriculture and industry. You see the drafting of men and women in unjust political wars. You see the establishment of an oppressive taxation system that will steal from its citizens a whopping one-tenth or more of their income. That was considered heavy taxation. God says, I'm going to punish you and give you what you ask for and give you what you deserve if you rebel against me. And here you have this tyrant. And one thing he says is that anybody is a tyrant, anybody is oppressive, who taxes his people a tenth of their income. Because God says, that's all I tax. And if somebody taxes their people a tenth or more of their income, they're playing God. Now, brethren... You add up all the taxes that you pay every year of your life, and it'll be a little more than a tenth of the income. In fact, it will be all of your income from January to June every year. You happy with that? You happy living under a tyranny? Listen to what R.J. Rushton says. This destructive principle of ungodly state taxation can be seen in every area of life. Businesses and charitable foundations, etc., are licensed, a pagan form of taxation, which means that they operate at the pleasure of the state and are thus owned by the state. Doctors, dentists, teachers, mechanics, plumbers are all licensed by the state, except that in these latter cases, the state claims ownership of a man through its claim of ownership of his profession and trade. Inheritance is taxed to demonstrate that the family is owned by the state. Since the state never wants any one family or group of families to become too powerful, unless they're a part of the state elite, its taxation on inheritance is oppressive and destructive. The state taxes property and thus claims ownership of a man's home. The owner merely rents his home from the state. Property taxes especially decapitalize the elderly and poor members of society because their income seldom keep up with the rising tax burden. Sales taxes decapitalize the lower and middle income members of society since they must spend a larger portion of their incomes than the upper income groups. The state taxes electricity, clothing, food, drugs, tires, etc., There's hardly any area of life that the state does not claim ownership of by its power to tax. The list of items taxed is only limited by the imagination and energy of state bureaucracy. Beloved, you have not lived in a free country, nor did your fathers, nor did your grandfathers. We have not lived in a free country in this, in in, in many generations. 
and yet we think we have. And we've learned to adjust to our chains. Well, you see, this thing of taxation is a very spiritual thing. All taxes not commended by God forcibly take the wealth of producers and transfers it to consumers and non-producers and bureaucrats. Those taxes lessen production, increase unemployment, raise prices and costs, decreased earnings and profits, breed envy, limit what the church can do through her offerings, and destroy the family. The biblical tax system of taxation is very simple. And it can be a great blessing to a nation that incorporates it into its life. The biblical system of taxation is based on God's claim in Christ of universal proprietorship and unlimited sovereignty. He imposes on us three taxes. Are you paying them? One of them I know you're not paying. I'm not either. But are you paying the taxes? Three taxes in God's system of taxation. One, the tax of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is God's tax on our use of His time and our energy and His energy. Are you keeping the Sabbath? Do you recognize it's not just a privilege, it's a duty, it's a tax. God says, I own your time. And I own your energy. And on the first day of the week, the Lord's day, I want you to rest and worship me, recognizing the fact and give a testimony to the fact you belong to me. I'm your Lord and I'm your owner. The second tax is the tax of the tithe. That's God's tax on our use of his land. The Lord owns everything. And anything that we have, any property we have, he's given to us as a stewardship and he's taxing us for the freedom we have to use that land. And in God's tithe, there's three kinds of tithes. There is the Lord's tithe, which is one-tenth of your earnings that is to be spent on the carrying out of the Great Commission. There is the poor tithe, which is a, a definite amount of your money that is to be spent on the, those that are needy and that are in a, a, a lesser financial situation than you are. And there is the family tithe. That is a portion of your income that you spent enjoying time with your family and teaching your family about God and about the beauties of this creation. You keeping those three tithes? The third tax is the head tax. The only tax God has commanded civil magistrates to levy on its citizens is a head tax. Turn to Exodus chapter 30. And you see it. Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16. The Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them there, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give to the contribution of the Lord. The rich shall not pay more, and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel when you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. And you shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting 
that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Now, that passage, I'm aware, has a lot of Old Testament words in it that make it difficult to understand. And I would recommend you read a book on the subject like Tithing and Dominion by R.J. Rushdoony uh, that expounds that text. But the point here is this. There was a flat rate head tax levied upon the people of Israel. Everybody paid the same amount, not the same percentage, but everybody paid the same amount. The individual citizens were taxed 110 grains of silver annually to maintain the civil magistrate as God's minister of justice. And Rushton, he says concerning this text, by means of this tax, the people of Israel placed themselves under God as their king, paying tribute to him, and gained in return God's protecting care. Do you ever wonder why uh, Margaret Thatcher was kicked out of office when she was so effective and such a Christian woman? By the way, one time Margaret Thatcher addressed the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. And she said, our American friends... Now, you, you, I'm not going to imitate your accent. Our American friends speak of a government of the, this is what she said, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. She said, I would have thought when a group of Christians got together, it would be not to ascertain the will of the majority, but to ascertain the will of Almighty God. By the way, Downing Street had been reading Rush Dooney. And one of the things she wanted to incorporate was to transform the tax system of England and provide for a kind of head tax. But the point is, that's the only kind of tax that God gives the civil government the power to levy. Everybody pays the same amount, the rich and the poor. And you say, Joe, is that going to pay for everything that we're doing today, the civil government's doing today in Washington? No. But it will provide enough money for the civil government to do what it ought to do. Now, how are we to reform our ungodly and destructive tax system in the United States? Not by violence, not by revolution, not by tax revolt and refusal to pay any taxes. Those are non-biblical methods that originate with Karl Marx. Jesus told his disciples to give to Caesar what is due him. His government must be dismantled. And his taxation, but by biblical methods, not by the revolt that the Jewish zealots wanted. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you use Caesar's services, pay his taxes. Revolution will not accomplish your goals. If you do not pay this tax, Caesar's soldiers will put you in jail. And then you'll be no, of use, no use to anybody but a burden on your family. If we want the tax system of the United States to change, replace every political leader who votes like he believes the state has original ownership and sovereignty over you, whether he's pro-life or not. A lot of pro-lifers have an ungodly and wicked view of taxation. Then begin to obey God's tax system yourself regarding the Sabbath and the tithe. And educate everybody you can about what taxation is all about. The spiritual nature of taxation as we've been describing today. Evangelize. 
Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of the world, and it is that truth and belief in that truth and nothing but belief in that truth that will abolish and bring down the IRS. Well, I wish we had time to talk about the relation of church and state. We may do it another day. But let me conclude with these words. Why spend so much time on a subject that is so far from our present reality? So far from the desire of most Americans, so far from the understanding of most American Christians, and seemingly so far away from being put into effect. How can this discussion that may or may not become reality until the far distant future be relevant to our challenges and struggles today in January 2010? Those are good questions. And they have some important answers. Why suspend so much time on a subject that it may take centuries? May not, but it may take centuries. Before we see it worked out. First. What we've been talking about this Sunday and last Sunday. Is a part of the whole counsel of God in the Bible. That preachers are called upon to preach. And we're called upon to believe and understand. Whether their full relevance is appreciated by us or not. Second. As one has said. If you don't know where you're going. Anyway, we'll get you there just as well. Effective service to Christ and effective Christian living and effective Christian political involvement must be goal-oriented. Or else, we'll just be going in every direction. Only biblical strategies and biblical methods can reach biblical goals. Teach that to your children. So your children don't, won't flounder in this life. Have you ever sat down with your children and asked them, let's talk about goals for your life. Where do you want to be in five years, ten years, fifty years? What do you have to do to get there? So many young people today in this world are floundering like fish out of water. They don't have any idea except some general idea as to where they want to wind up and how they want their lives to count for Christ. They want their lives to count for Christ, but they don't know where they're going. We must be goal-oriented. We must teach our children to be goal-oriented. Many adults, do you know what your goals are? Where you want to be in 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Goals keep us on track and keep us from being easily distracted. So the, the explanation of what we want in a true state, that's what we're aiming at. That's the goal we're looking toward. That's what we're working for. It will be more difficult for people to mislead us as we keep in mind what it is we ultimately want. Because we use these goals as a standard for judging the goals and methods and policies of other human beings and institutions. 
How do we judge state policies and new legislation and politicians, their promises every election cycle? We say, do they get us closer to the goal? The church. What's the goal of the church in 2010? Westminster Confession distills it down to say it's our purpose to gather and perfect the elect. So what we do, does it get us closer to the goal or farther away? What about your family? What's what's the God-oriented goals for your family? And your children come to you with various questions as to whether or not we can do this or that. Say, is it going to get us closer to our goals? Because many of the decisions we have to make today are decisions not between good and evil, but between good and good. And without a clear-cut goal, we'll never reach where God wants us to be. This goal is what we're praying for and working for. We, biblically-oriented Christians, should be setting the agenda and not be reactionaries or compromisers or gradualists in the present debate. How do we get involved in politics usually? We react. This guy presents some terrible piece of legislation, and all of us get out here and write our congressman and try to stop this piece of legislation. And then somebody else presents a piece of legislation. And we go out here and we write letters. They're setting the agenda. And they're keeping us off balance. Why is it that Christians don't have a political agenda? This is where we're going to go. Go with us. If you go with us, we'll vote for you. If you don't, we'll run against you. We may run against you anyway. But here's the goal. We're going to set the agenda and not just react. And not buy into this gradualism that says, well, you can't reach these goals now, so just gradually put them in, gradually vote for things that are not as good as you want, but are getting closer to the goal. And as a result, many of the votes that good men take because of that gradualistic myth are bad votes. For instance, we as a church have constantly pressed the pro-life movement in Georgia to emphasize that abortion is murder and to work for not just the limits, limitation on the amount of abortions in Georgia, but work toward the outlawing of abortion in Georgia. And the answer is, that goal's too far away. We must do things gradually, like, we can't outlaw abortion, so let's just limit the number of abortions and say in the state of Georgia you can't get an abortion without parental consent. Well, the only problem is, I don't believe in abortion with parental consent. That the pro-lifers who try to back a bill that says abortion only by parental consent are backing an abortion bill. That's where gradualism. I've been fed gradualism by the pro-lifers ever since it started back in the 70s. And we're still where we started. We use this standard to evaluate and to guide where we're going, what we want to do, what the agenda is we want to set. Well, what should we be doing? What can we do now to begin to reach 
these biblical goals that may be far off. Well, the first one is to live and act in faith that someday these goals will be reached. To live and act in faith in the promise of God, like in Isaiah 2, that says a day will come when all the nations shall stream into the church and will say to the church, quote, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Believe that. There's coming a day when the nations are going to come to Christ and beg the church to teach them how to govern by the law of God. So what we do, we do from that vantage point. Not the vantage point of survival. A great politician one time, I asked him the question in Dan Jordan's house. I said, what's the goal for your, why, why are you in Congress? He said, for survival. And I said, sir, that is not good enough. We'll not win Unless our goal is victory. And he he began believing that until his death. So live and act in faith that someday the civil government is going to be as we've described and as God has, has described. Secondly, when you talk to your friends about political things, and I trust you do, wisely critique their viewpoints. Don't just nod the head, but if the situation allows for it, uh, gently, because everybody's an expert in politics, uh, gently critique their viewpoint and say, well, you know, if this happens, then here's where it's going to lead. And then you try to convince them of the effectiveness of the truth of biblical views. Know your position. Read some books like Law and Liberty by R.J. Rushdoony. Or his great book called Politics of Guilt and Pity that I recommend everybody in here read. And read to your children and have them read. Know what you believe and then effectively try to convince your friends of what you believe. Give out this CD. Now, not because it's the greatest thing on the subject, but it's, e- it's close at hand. It's easy. It's available. It's accessible. We also DVD our messages. Get people over to your house and get them to watch the DVD. Uh, in your home concerning the day and give them an opportunity to uh, ask you questions. Keep abreast of what's going on around you. Read good books that help you understand more completely the great truths that we've described. Evangelize and educate. Evangelize and educate. Evangelize and educate. And understand, beloved, that this is not optional for you. It is not a distraction from your spiritual life and concerns. If you say, I'm sorry the preacher did not speak on a spiritual subject this morning. I have failed to make clear the fact that politics is as spiritual as you can get. Don't let your witness for Christ to other people be presented in syrupy. And emotional, empty terms that have no concrete answers to the critical issues people face today. Helping Christians understand their relationship to the civil magistrate is helping them to understand how to submit to the Lordship of Christ in all areas of life. 
You remember what the text begins with. Give your life a living sacrifice to Christ. And here's how that kind of life is going to show itself under his lordship in every area of life. And so I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let us pray. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.